Welcome to the Morning News Podcast for Thursday, June 25th. We begin with an initiative being put forward by a Mount Royal University professor to see increased anti-racism education in classrooms. We speak with the prof who believes opening the conversation in schools would make a huge impact. New provincial legislation released earlier this week will ensure convicted sex offenders will not be legally permitted to change their names. We get reaction from the Calgary and Area Child Advocacy Centre and hear about the resources they offer in our city. According to a new study, most Canadians support the idea of bringing in a universal basic income, but they also don't want to pay for it. We speak to a professor of public policy on the controversial topic. Then we look at the level of physical activity of Canadian children. The annual participation report card is out and our kids are getting failing grades when it comes to active living. We get the details from a behavioral epidemiologist from the University of Alberta. And finally, it's a chance to support local homegrown artists and be entertained at the same time. Leela Ahir, Minister of Culture, Multiculturalism and Status of Women, joins us to give us details on the weekly online Alberta concert series, Heartbeats Live. Proposed new legislation will help keep children and vulnerable Albertans safe by ensuring convicted sex offenders cannot change their names. Now, Alberta already has some of the strongest legislation around name changes. These rules will help make things even stronger. Joining us to talk about what this means for children is Karen Orser, CEO of the Calgary and Area Child Advocacy Centre. Good morning, Karen. Good morning, Sue. Hey, thanks so much for joining us. Such an important topic to talk about. And, you know, the more we can give it light and, and, you know, make sure people are aware of what's going on, the better. But is this bill, is something like this truly important to really keep beefing things up? Yeah, I think um, I I can speak for CACs in the province, actually. Uh, We've had lots of conversations with... Um, our colleagues at the Zebra Child Protection in Red Deer and obviously, uh, sorry, Zebra Child Protection in Edmonton and the Central Alberta Child Advocacy Centre in Red Deer. And, like, we think it's good legislation um, for us. And we, we play a big role in um, serving the 15% of the most complex and severe child abuse. And so we, we always believe really strongly that it's important that we also, because of the work we do, um, advocate for policy and practices um, that are best for kids. So, so we actually think this is great legislation and anything we can do to add an extra layer of protection um, for kids and families, we think is a good thing. So we're quite happy to support this. So Karen, in the past, for example, uh, is this something your organization would have to uh, deal with, is trying to figure out if, if, if an offender had changed their name and, and keep on top of that and they, they could change it several times? You know what, I'm actually not sure um, the uh, in terms of like the actual stats around how mm-hmm. often that happens. I suspect it's not high, uh, but Calgary Police would really be able to speak to that. And I certainly know that, um, like, name changes, they would track all of that anyways. This okay. would probably be more of a benefit to the general public for those high profile, I suspect, for those high profile cases where mm-hmm. we would recognize names. Um, yeah. Karen, you deal, as you say, with, you know, the worst of the of the cases that, yeah. that come. Can you talk to us a little bit about that and what exactly you do and what, what kind of, of cases you might see and have to deal with? Yeah. So, so child advocacy centers are actually a really popular model in the States and they're newer to Canada. So we only have about 25. And in Calgary, we have five partners with Children's Services, Alberta Health Services, Calgary Police, the RCMP and the Crown all working together on site for those um, most severe and complex cases. So primarily we deal with sexual abuse, uh, 
um, and really complex and severe physical abuse. And that's because there's already multi-system involvement. So what happens is when uh, a report is made or a child discloses abuse that is complex and severe, those cases come right to the centre and we work together on site with all of our partners to make sure that no kids fall through the cracks. It's wraparound services and support um, from their first time they come in for their forensic interview to our beautiful space and if people haven't seen the space really do check out our website or um, you have to call and come for a visit one day because it is quite an amazing place um, so from the first time kids from come in for their interview um, all the way through um, if they need support through the court process we're with them um, and providing whole support for kids and families so it is um, it's a recognized and powerful model um, and we're really proud of it. How is the situation in our city, and and could we do better? We know what you folks are doing, but as far as resources uh, throughout the the city and access to resources, just in general related to COVID. No, no. In in, in terms of in terms of the issue when it comes to uh, you know uh, yeah. children and the resources that they can uh, you know access in our city compared to maybe other cities in the nation, are are we uh, doing all we can? Yeah, I think we are, and I think we do have one of the one of the best child advocacy centers, and also one of the strongest provincial networks. And I think that's really important to me because, and to all of us, it really is about making sure that wherever kids are in the province, they have access to our services. So we serve actually Calgary area, mm-hmm. and so if cases come in in High River, or Okotoks, or Airdrie, or Cochrane, the goal is to have a CAC that. Um, the, the RCMP or Children's Services in those communities can reach out and tap into the expertise at our centre. Um, and with a strong provincial network as well, we really hope that we can do a great job of um, education in schools and, and that prevention work that really does have to go hand in hand. And when we do the work we do, we just feel so strongly that we have to be out there reminding the community um, about what to do if they suspect abuse, signs of abuse, and also just how to raise strong, healthy kids and build strong, healthy families. So uh, we think that in Alberta, we're really um, doing a great job of that. And I'm really excited about the work we'll be able to continue to do because we have such strong uh, support in the province of Alberta for this model. Karen, let's talk a little bit about that. How can we, as citizens, recognize mm-hmm. child abuse? What can we do as just, you know, people who are out and about, adults who are seeing things? What do we look for and what do we do about it? So there's, there's a lot, but you want to look for, and uh, first you want to know kids. <laughs> you want to pay attention to kids in your neighborhood. You want to be a protective factor and a natural support. So we always encourage people to um, to be an engaged community member that's connected to the kids in their community. Um, but you're looking for sudden changes in behavior or performance, unexplained injuries, um, or injuries that don't match um, the child's explanation, uh, extreme behavioral reactions, aggression, avoidance, withdrawal, um, and for sure sexual knowledge or behavior beyond the, their typically stage of development. Uh, kids that don't want to be at home or run away frequently is also something that we want to look for. But as community members, I think what it is important to do is um, to make an effort to connect with the kids that we know and ask them how they're doing, open up dialogue, and then... Certainly one of the things we always want to reinforce for people is, um, because I think there's this sense of it's not my business, I don't know, I'm not sure, Mm -hmm. Um, 
if people are worried, it's their responsibility. Uh, if you're worried a child is being abused, it's your responsibility to call and report that. And you call your children's services office and report that. And, and actually, there's experts there who are great at their job, and they figure it out um, and get to the bottom of it. And really, they're there to make sure that kids and families are strong and safe. Karen, tell us a little bit about your team in the Advocacy Centre. Is this healthcare professionals? Or are these volunteers? You know, who... Uh, are, yep. are the people that are, uh, that are going to be in contact with these kids? So what's beautiful about the model of an advocacy centre is it's the partners that would do this work anyways, but we just work together and with a commitment to integrated practice. So Calgary Police, um, Child Abuse Service, Alberta Health uh, Medical Team and Therapy Team um, is on site and uh, Children's Services works on site. So all of our partners uh, work on site and then our role as the advocacy centre and the backbone organisation that really brings those partners together and makes sure we focus and always keep working together is we provide some of the extra things like we have a forensic interview specialist and we have facility dogs that will actually um, attend court with kids or sit with them through their interview with police or children's services and we have a whole victim support program um, and volunteers and we have a child life specialist who actually her role is when kids come into the center um, to make sure that they feel safe and they're comfortable and they know who they're going to talk to and they know what they're going to talk about because there can be so much anxiety for kids that they think they're in trouble or they've done something wrong and they just don't know what's going to happen when they come there so um, a lot of people behind the scenes doing great work and all in the best interest of keeping um, the experience as, as, as positive as we can. Our goal really is to make sure that kids have to tell their story one time. Mm. Um, you know, if kids have to tell their story to four different people, um, we often lose the uh, the quality of the evidence and the and then, and then cases can get, get thrown out in court and uh, we don't get the best outcome for kids. So that's what it's all about and um, it really is tremendous place so important and i and i am just online looking and it does look like a beautiful facility so uh, mm-hmm. we'll we'll pop down when things get uh, back to normal We'd and have that. a tour and and <laughs> check it out that. thank you so much for joining us karen appreciate your time thank you have a great day Take you care. Too. that's karen orser ceo of calgary and area child advocacy center time now for helicopter traffic for west district by truman a community connected to its city 708 now and racism exists everywhere whether intentional or not and it's a tough conversation to have but acknowledging racism in classrooms in schools is an important step. Marva Ferguson is an assistant professor in the Department of Child Studies and Social Work at Mount Royal University and she joins us now to further this discussion. Good morning Marva. Good morning. Thanks so much for being with us this morning. So is it important that before we even talk about introducing anti-racism curriculum to schools, we have to address the fact that there is racism in schools themselves? Uh, uh, You know what? That's a very good question. And I think that we definitely need to address the fact that racism exists. And um, I find sometimes that it is excused or dismissed. And with, with that dismissal, it is actually saying that there is it, it's, it's non-existent. And from where I sit, and as an instructor, I find that most times uh, students enter the classroom with their own perception, with their own information. And that is where it starts 
we start to clarify and to explain what is going on in the cl- uh, classroom, what racism looks like, and it's an opportunity to start that discussion. Marva, in your research and in your experience, is there anything like this or is there any component within the school system at this point that does educate uh, the uh, issues surrounding racism? There is, and I do, um, and um, again, we have to be mindful that it needs to be ongoing, it needs to be integrated, it needs to be uh, discussed, and it needs to uh, form part of the policy that we have, or just to say the curriculum that we have in the in the schools. And yes, you're right, there, it, there is some, but more needs to happen. And, you know, I think really it needs to start at a young age, too, doesn't it? I mean, there's no better time to start than when kids are, are young because they're, they're learning from their parents. They're learning from those around them. And, and this is the time to start introducing them to the differences that we all have that make us so unique and wonderful. Absolutely. It, uh, those are the conversations that we have around the dinner table those are the conversations that we have at family gathering and um, it forms part of uh, the children's um, social location mm-hmm. because they learn and they observe and, and children are very, very smart. They, they see and they hear things and they pick it up at a very early age. And so later on in life, you see it manifest, manifest itself in the classroom and even in the workplace. Now, what ages and, and or what grades do you think that we do uh, look at uh, putting a curriculum in place? Or would we do it through all grades and uh, just different components as the kids get older? You, you know, I would say it starts at uh, it starts at a very early age. From um, I'm not going to say specifically what age because uh, children uh, respond or they are able to understand at different age groups. But just to say uh, at the university level. It needs to be integrated in the curriculum where uh, we know that we have university students going out in the community. And I can speak from a social work perspective where they're going to be working with with individuals. This is a very diverse uh, community. We live in a world now where it is different, different people from different races. And it's so important that uh, students have that background, that awareness, and that critical thinking when they're working with uh, with individuals. So Marva, how do you go about, you know, advocating for anti-racist curriculum to be integrated into schools? Uh, and, and what progress have you seen so far? Um, well, uh, that's a very good question. And what I do is to personally, uh, working with the, the team at the university within our department, mm-hmm. where we start to really in uh, intentionally look at the curriculum and what it is that we have that we're using for um, for education. Uh, for example, we look at uh, the LGBTQ, we look at uh, anti-black uh, racism, we look at all the different races, indigenizing the university or in or looking at providing uh, training for students who are going out into the community and working with the different groups. So definitely there is work going on. And, you know, sometimes we want to do a lot, but we have to start with the small steps. Sure.
And if we can talk long term, uh, Marva, because I know that with Black Lives Matter, uh, you know, on in the headlines right now, this is a, a topic that's very much on people's minds. Um, it could, uh, d- you know, start to decrease. And uh, this could be something that, you know, uh, not forgotten, uh, but not the hot headline right now, because we all want to look at uh, society as a whole. Uh, the importance of continuing this, not over the next uh, few weeks, but over the years to come. Yeah. It needs to be... Um ongoing. And uh, I want to say that sometimes when we talk about black lives um, or um, anti-black racism, it comes around in February of every year. And I will say that uh, this needs to be a continuous conversation, not just a one-off. And um, that's where I feel that I have a responsibility. And I can't say that I I speak for all black people, but in terms of my work as a professor, I start in the classroom and I start to do that advocacy and that training and learning where uh, uh, students who are entering the classroom are beginning to become aware of racism, specifically around black lives or um, anti-black racism so that they can be prepared for the, uh, the, the work that they're about to do in the community and specific to social work. And, it, and it's important. I mean, you know, we get texts and just got one in now. I don't know why people get their back up so much about just having the conversation and, and making sure that this is a part of the curriculum for kids of all ages. It's, it's a discussion. And, and why, how can that be hurtful or, or you know, a, a difficult thing? It's just something we need to do as a society, all of us. And you are absolutely right. And and definitely you will have people who uh, defend their position. We have to look at our society in which we live. It's a predominantly white society based on, um, uh, uh, for want of a better word, systemic um, racism. And if that is a level of where people are sometimes very comfortable and we don't want to have the conversation because, yes, it, it causes a little bit of discomfort, but it, it needs to happen. Absolutely needs to happen. Thank you for your work on this and thank you for joining us this morning, Marva. And thank you for having me. That is Marva Ferguson, Assistant Professor in the Department of Child Studies and Social Work at Mount Royal University. And, you know, on a related note, uh, there's a petition out right now calling for the Calgary Board of Education to establish school-focused racism task forces. So a, a teacher and a multicultural group, they have combined forces and they're spearheading this, pushing it forward to try and address systemic racism in schools and just get people talking and further the discussion and, uh, you know, make sure that it's something that continues to be top of mind, that we continue to learn from, talk about, and get better at Hey, listen, we've been talking about this quite a bit on the morning news. This is what's happening in the world right now. It is. And and this professor, when people are saying, did I miss something? No, you didn't miss anything, but maybe, uh, you know, listening more closely might help you. And I sound like I'm explaining right now. But in my experience in school, when racism was brought up, it was very similar to what we're doing right now with BLM in reaction to an event. Mm -hmm. Not to say, you know what, we're going to study what racism is, what colonialism was, uh, and what things look like in modern times break it down explain you know uh, why people and again i know people don't like to hear the term white privilege what privilege means it doesn't matter and it doesn't mean that you're you're wealthy or rich it just means you're white we have we have benefits that people of color don't 
and and, and and your outlook in life. So as far as I'm concerned, this is in, in the same wheelhouse as explaining and teaching racism, the same way we talked about last week, explaining personal finance and taxes, real world things in the schools. And I will never uh, not defend somebody to, to teach people uh, things that you'll need later in life and for the rest of your life. 100%. 717 now. Time for helicopter traffic for West District by Truman, Calgary's newest and best master planned community. 8.12 now, and as COVID-19 continues to impact our world, the hotel industry in Calgary remains at a standstill. And many of the big hotels, they're still closed. Employees wondering when they might reopen again. Joining us to talk about the situation is Sol Zia, Executive Director of the Calgary Hotel Association. Good morning, Sol. Good morning. How are you? Excellent. Thanks so much for joining us. So are all hotels allowed to be open now in Calgary, but some obviously just choosing not to because there are no visitors? So most hotels in each quadrant of the city did remain open during the state of emergency um, because hotels were deemed an essential service. Mm-hmm. Um, that did keep a lot of um, Calgarians employed. There's over 6,000 employed um, by hotels across the city. But to your point, that wasn't true of hotels in the core. Yeah. Uh, most, were forced to, mo- uh, most were forced to temporarily close due to near 0% occupancy. Uh, the Germain and the Marriott did remain open during all this time. But hotels are reopening. Good. Have you heard, uh, let's, let's talk about the impact, because obviously you, any business you're in to shut down for that many months, uh, very difficult. Have you heard of any casualties of, of any uh, local hotels that might not uh, ever open again? There will there will be a few. So we're working with a few of our member hotels um, that unfortunately may have to close mm-hmm. um, or not reopen, I guess, so to speak. Um, and we're working on those details. There There will be casualties, unfortunately, but... You know, a number of the hotels um, across the core um, are reopening. Hotel Arts reopened last week. The Sheraton Suites Eau Claire, Palliser, and the Hyatt will all reopen on July 2nd, and hopefully the Westin by mid-July. So there is a lot of uh, hope and uh, light at the end of the tunnel. But to your question, there will unfortunately be a few casualties um, before the summer is over. That's great news that everybody's starting to reopen. What about employees? Do we know it at this point? You know, how many will be brought back? I guess, is it too soon to tell on that? It's too soon to tell. Uh, I know the hotels are bringing uh, a number of employees back and the wage subsidies and programs offered by the federal government um, were part of bringing um, hotels back. And a number of hotels actually did extensive upgrades during this time. Uh, the Sandman downtown and the core um, re-envisioned themselves. They had all sorts of folks employed um, essentially just changing the hotel. I haven't seen it yet, but I've heard it's uh, quite a fantastic transformation. So that, that helped keep hotel employees engaged and, and, and employed to actually refurbish and enhance the properties as we look to get going. Getting things going again, cranking it up again is one thing, Saul. But if you can talk about the challenges, because I, I would think that from a hotel's perspective, you look at previous summers and you say, okay, this is how much staff will need and how much ordering will do for X, Y, and Z. Uh, but this summer is going to be completely different. That's got to be a real challenge. It is completely different. And you hear the term bandied around during COVID of pivot. And a lot of the hotels have pivoted. Um, you know, there, there's going to be summer staycation offers. It's actually going to be a pretty exciting series of balcony concerts yeah. for hotels that have it. So there, there will be things going on. But usually in July, Calgary hotels have over 80% of their rooms occupied. Um, we're looking at, at numbers far lower than that, below 25%. But that's just the nature of the crisis we're in right now. But there are some exciting things happening. And I, and I heard earlier in your show around 
uh, drive-thrus, stampede breakfasts, and all those. And some of the hotels will be hosting those things and concerts, mm-hmm. which is pretty exciting. It, it is. It's great. It's great. Everybody's kind of joining forces at where they can to try and bring back industries, bring back the employees, and get this city moving again, isn't it? It's true. You know, we need to get uh, folks engaged. What's been fantastic, uh, and I spoke to our partners at Tourism Calgary yesterday, is, you know, we thought initially it would be a lot of locals getting out, staying at hotels, maybe bringing their families, using the pools, now that they're reopened. But I've heard it's the regional travel is, is really picking up. Um, and uh, the good news is we're ahead of where we thought we'd be in June. Let's be frank, those numbers aren't, aren't great. Mm-hmm. But people are getting up and traveling around the province, and we're seeing it, definitely hearing it in the mountains, with some hotels um, actually being there full over some of these weekends since Stage 2 came in. Good stuff. Onward and upward, mm-hmm. and the fingers crossed so we can keep this uh, recovery moving at a steady pace. Thank you so much, Saul. I just wanted to close off. If, if anyone's looking for exciting things to do uh, at the hotels, go to visitcalgary.com. We're posting everything oh, um, that's happening uh, this year, whether it's uh, breakfast, concerts. It's all available on visitcalgary.com. Awesome. Good stuff. Sounds like a great resource. Thank you very much, Saul. Thank you. Uh, Saul Zia, Executive Director of the Calgary Hotel Association. It is 8.17, time for helicopter traffic for West District by Truman. Main streets highlight 20-foot sidewalks and integrated bike paths. 9.08 on the morning news. According to a new Angus Reid study, 59% of respondents supported some form of universal basic income. But only 36 agreed that they'd be willing to pay more in taxes to fund it. Where do Albertans stand on this? So we're joined by Associate Professor and uh, Scientific Director of Fiscal and Economic Policy at the School of Public Policy, University of Calgary, Lindsay M. Teds. Good morning, Lindsay. Good morning. Well, I want to get this out of the way right away because we had a texture when we teased that you'd be coming on. Um, universal income, is that the same as guaranteed income? That's a really good question. Um, this is the problem uh, with this area is that lots of people use lots of different words interchangeably. Well, for others, they mean specific things. So could it mean a guaranteed income? Yes. Could it mean every single household, including mine, gets? money every year uh, with no clawbacks yeah it, it can mean anything you want and and this is you know the field that i am in right now is trying to disentangle all of these effects and figure out whether or not we can actually implement the basic income the idea is a great idea but the rubber it's where the rubber meets the road can we get a policy in place that people agree to and want to pay for okay so before we talk about that let's see in your research and your where you stand what does a universal basic income mean uh when when we've gone through the the literature really what we have um, put it down to is that it's about a 13 by 3 matrix of elements that you have to choose in order to be able to design a basic income so it's not a thing it is many many different things the most important part being that you're actually trying to achieve principles not an actual program design the key principles of the basic income are trying to address is simplicity we are trying to overcome stigma and treat people with respect we want people to have economic security and we want social inclusion that's really what defines the basic income so within these uh, the study from Angus Reid, uh, six out of ten respondents 
they support some form of universal basic incomes. Should we be surprised by that number? Are you surprised by that number? No, I'm not surprised by it at all because this idea of um, people who are struggling to make ends meet, if we give them extra money, we know from all of the science that they actually invested in really good activities that will improve their outcomes. So the idea of it is absolutely fantastic. It's really what what is it? How do we design it? How do we implement it? And how do we pay for it? That is the key, right? And I mean, really, during, during this pandemic, we've seen the difference between the haves and the have-nots. Really, it's shown and, and has become quite clear in Canada. But I think even, even this poll shows that we agree there should be some sort of perhaps universal basic income. But nobody wants to pay for that. Yeah, I, I mean, I, which is not surprising. No. <laughs> Everybody wants the benefits without the cost. Yeah. Um, I, I do see in this study that they did also float the idea of a wealth tax, which if you look at the NDP proposal for a wealth tax, will bring in anywhere between $5 billion to $9 billion a year. That doesn't get you anything close to a universal basic income. So there is a big gap here to bridge in terms of what is it that people want? What are they willing to pay for it? How are we going to go about paying for it? And if we use a wealth tax, are we actually going to get those revenues? Because high income people are really crafty at um, <laughs> hiding their money. Hiding it, yes. <laughs> uh, Lindsay, this isn't the first time this has uh, come to light or uh, the suggestion of a universal income. Uh, why is it different uh, this time or is it different this time or is it just, you know, the recirculation of an idea that's, uh, you know, had potential uh, discussion in the past? Yeah, I mean, so one of the things that I think is really, really important is we have to stop this conversation of let's do it and then we never do it. So what what we hear, so I'm on a panel for BC, um, an expert panel. We're studying the design and implementation of a basic income. And we're, what we're trying to do is get people to understand, you've got to stop talking about this as an idea, and we have to roll up our sleeves and actually sit down and design this and figure out what are our values and can we move forward with it. We have to just stop this constant cycle that comes up every 15 or 20 years when times are bad, people start talking about a basic income. If it's a good idea, let's do it. If it's not a good idea, let's just stop mm. trying to float it, one or the other. You alluded to it earlier. How much would be needed for this universal income pot of money? Well, it depends on the design of right. it because there's no one definition of it. I mean, at, at, a, at, a, federal, at a federal level, that would be um, you know, achieving some objectives like poverty reduction, um, it is in the range of, you know, $120 billion to $200 billion. So that wealth tax doesn't get you anywhere close to achieving any basic principles of a basic income. Lindsay, we just got a text in and I'm hoping you can answer it for us. It says, you guys are promoting a lazy society in Canada. Oh. Free money, I'm not finished, uh, free money makes people lazy. Look at this CERB program now. Now, earlier you didn't mention the lazy aspect. You mentioned that if people have money, they invest it in intelligent ways and it might uh, perhaps uh, benefit the economy. So what do you say to that text? Okay, so this is where we have to talk about, you know, the size. Okay, if we were to go out and give everybody a basic income of fifty or $60,000, would there be labor force effects to it? Absolutely. 
But most of what, when we talk about a basic income, we're talking about something like the GST HST tax credit or the Canada Child Benefit, where it's delivered to low-income households and then scaled back as your income increases. And actually what we find is when you give money to low-income households, they actually work more. Um, for example, uh, when the Canada Child Benefit, we're seeing single moms particularly increase their labor force participation if they're able to pay for child care. So, you know, it's not as simple as to say people are going to sit around and do nothing. That assumes something about humans that we continue to uh, show is not true. We are not idle people. You have to be careful with the CERB because we have a lot of confounding effects right now. Um, in particular, schools are closed. Most ch- daycare centers are not opening up. Summer camps are not uh, ubiquitous. Parents are ha- struggling to be able to care for their kids and go back to work. And we have a real health concern going on. So people doing a cost-benefit analysis and saying, you know, I think it's too risky to go back to work or I don't have somebody to care for my kid is not the same thing as saying people will stay home when you give them money. You would probably not be surprised to know that our text line is lighting up now. And as we refer to uh, the, the the survey that was done, Albertans are amongst <laughs> the most in this entire country that are saying uh, no to this e- even becoming a discussion. Uh, and, and I think a lot of that has to do perhaps with values. It could also have to do with a misunderstanding of the evidence uh, related to this. And it, it may even, you know, the fact that there isn't one definition or one design of a universal basic income can also be confounding that. So if people are sitting there thinking, oh, if we give everybody, you know, thirty or $40,000, yeah, I'm not all for that. But that is just a model of a basic income. Like I said, there's a 13 by 3 choice matrix (laughs) to design and implement a a basic income. So, again, I think, um, you know, it'd be better if people got themselves informed, understood the evidence, and then uh, we have a conversation about values. And if we want to move here, how do we move towards a basic income? Wow, lots uh, to, to cover there. And, and lots of texts to read. Yeah, people have opinions for sure, Lindsay. So we really appreciate you answering our questions and uh, those of the many texters. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. That is Lindsay Teds, Associate Professor and Scientific Director of Fiscal and Economic Policy at the School of Public Policy, University of Calgary. 917, time for helicopter traffic for West District by Truman, a mix of unique single-family homes, townhomes, and condos. Eight nineteen now, and the wrapping is coming off. Heritage Calgary Executive Director Josh Traptow joins us now to discuss the end of a nearly three-year-long project. Good morning, Josh. Good morning, Sue. This is exciting. So we're, we'll soon be able to see Calgary's historic City Hall. Boy, it's been a long time, but that, that wrapping that's been on it, when will it come down, Josh? It will be coming down uh, over the course of the summer. Um, each of those panels actually weighs about 3,000 pounds. So Ooh, it's quite the process yeah. to remove the wrapping and the scaffolding. So they'll be removing the scaffolding and the uh, wrapping over the summer months and um, doing some uh, interior uh, fix-ups where they had to brace some of the um, uh, scaffolding. And then I think Mayor and Council will be doing a, a gradual uh, re, uh, moving back into the uh, historic City Hall sometime in the fall. Josh, when the panels and the wrapping comes off, what are uh, we going to notice differently? Uh, or will you have to be uh, 
you know, uh, uh, an architect, uh, um, I guess, follower, yeah, maybe to, even. To, to, to notice <laughs> the difference. You, Calgarians will notice um, some uh, coloring in uh, some of the different stones. Obviously, uh, a lot of those stones um, have been there since 1911 uh, when it was built. In fact, there's 15,522 stones. And so um, over 15,000 of those stones required treatment. So some of them had to be outright, outright replaced. Some of them had to be repinned. And so the stones, they had to source from three different quarries across uh, across the world, in fact, uh, one down in the United States and two in Europe. And so some of those stones will have a little bit of a different coloring because some of the remaining stones obviously have been weathered for the 100-plus years. So there there will be, you know, the odd stone that will look um, a little bit different colored. But the thing about heritage restoration is you have to use the materials, the original materials. So the city did a good job in sourcing Pascapu sandstone that would look... Um, very similar, if not uh, the exact same as the Pascapu sandstone that had been uh, quarried from the Bone and Oliver uh, quarry uh, in and around Calgary. Josh, what's the what's cost on something like this? I mean, it's a massive project, but it's part of our history, and I think most would argue that it's a necessity to have it repaired mm-hmm. and, and looking beautiful again, but what's the price tag? Do we know? I think I think they had estimated it would be everything about 33 or 34 million dollars mm-hmm. uh, to do this restoration, but this restoration will last for another hundred years. Um, they don't anticipate that there'll be any major um, interventions or restoration needed for those hundred years. Um, the thing about heritage buildings is they do need to be maintained on a regular basis, and I'm, I think sometimes uh, political buildings are sometimes maybe used as a political football, especially when politicians either live in them, like 24 Sussex Drive, or right. they're offices are in them and sometimes they don't want to be seen as you know spending money on themselves but like you said it's everyone's heritage that site has been calgary seat of government since 1885 when the original you know town hall stood there and then it was removed and then the new sandstone building was built in 1911 and that building has been the home of mayor and council since the uh, mid-1980s so uh you know it's very much a part of our of our local government and uh it's a very important piece of of calgary's uh, history both uh, politically but uh, also uh, as a city well thank you so much for uh, breaking it down and thanks for the update josh my pleasure thanks for having me that is josh trapto heritage calgary executive director Eight forty-nine on the morning news a new participation report card it shows that children aren't moving enough throughout the day and families in fact they need help supporting their healthy behavior this is interesting to me because uh, obviously we'll have to get to the bottom of it if it's during COVID times, the pandemic, or in general. Because I know uh, during regular times, quote unquote, my kids, I'll say we're going for a walk and they might be on their iPod or playing Minecraft. Mm-hmm. And I have to drag oh, them out of the house. Me too. I'm, I'm living it as well. In phys ed, I try to promote and you cannot push your values onto kids. I say maybe try out for the basketball team, try out for the soccer team. So we'll get to the bottom of this as right now we're joined by University of Alberta Behavioral Behavioral epidemiologist Valerie Carson. Good morning, Valerie. Good morning. So this is a participation report card, and uh, because we're calling it a report card, how would you say the grades uh, look for our children here in Alberta? Yeah, so uh, when we look at uh, some of the main behaviors in the report card, um, the grades um, weren't, weren't too great for overall physical activity. It was a D-plus. Uh, sedentary behavior, which includes uh, screen time with a D plus, uh, a B for sleep, uh, and an F uh, for 24-hour movement behavior. So that's 
uh, includes recommendations for the sleep, the sedentary behavior, plus the physical activity. Did you say that an F? As, yes. in, as in a failing mark altogether? Yeah, so only 15% of Canadian children and youth uh, meet our 24-hour movement guidelines in Canada. What, what is that exactly? Break that down a bit for us. Yeah, so the physical activity recommendation is getting uh, at least 60 minutes of moderate to vigorous physical activity a day. So that's kind of that heart-pumping uh, physical activity. Uh, that's no more than two hours per day of screen time. And that doesn't include... Uh, school screen time, so it's just recreational screen time. And then for sleep, uh, it's 9 to 11 hours for 5 to 13-year-olds and 8 to 10 hours for 14 to 17-year-olds. Well, if, if the kids are kind of set in their ways and they want to do their thing, I understand uh, from what you found uh, and you want to put forward some suggestions for families. So I guess it has to start with mom and dad and maybe some older siblings, right? Yeah, so the, the theme of this year's report card is really the family because we know family members um, really play a, a major role in shaping children's lives. Uh, and so we know that, uh, for example, uh, families uh, where parents are quite active, they tend to have children that are more active. Uh, families who have uh, screen time limits in their household tend to have children with less screen time. Uh, and so there really is this kind of uh, really important role that the families can play. Does this report card take into effect that this period through the COVID-19 pandemic and, and the kids being at, who, at school, uh, you know, not being able to really go out and play, first of all, but also doing their schoolwork from home too? Yeah, so this report card was, uh, all the data that was synthesized for it was before uh, COVID and, and it was all written up before COVID, but uh, participation did do a separate study uh, in the beginning of April uh, to compare kind of how our children used doing since COVID started. And we did find that those numbers went down even more. So kind of less than 5% of children mm-hmm. used were then meeting those 24-hour guidelines. You've, you've partnered and you have uh, some experience with participation. Can we get more ideas and tips and instructions uh, through participation? Yeah, so Participation does have a lot of great resources on on their website, and uh, they do offer uh, three tips to help families get more active uh, as part of the report card. And the first one is being an active role model, so uh, trying to incorporate physical activity into daily routines, uh, looking for opportunities to be active as a family, and remembering that physical activity doesn't have to be complicated. It doesn't have to be expensive. It can be simply just going out for a walk as a family or um, going out for a bike ride. Uh, The second tip is creating a family media plan, so trying to set some limits around screen viewing, trying to have some family time that's free of screens. And and the last one is encouraging some outdoor time. So when we spend time outdoors, uh, we get more physical activity, we spend less time on those screens, we get better quality sleep, and we also get a really great boost in our physical and our mental health. Get up and get moving. Thanks so much for joining us, Valerie. Thank you. Take care. You too. That's Valerie Carson, U of A behavioral epidemiologist, and it's participaction.com. 719 now. We, you know, everybody I think is disappointed, right? We're not going to have Calgary Stampede this year due to COVID-19. Stampede 2020 is cancelled. I think that disappoints people for so many reasons. It's a part of our heritage. It's a part of our culture. It's something that we do from the parade right through the great 10 days. It's what we have to do. And I know lots of businesses hard hit, but this is a a big gut punch. But the spirit's still going to be alive, Sue. That's true. Well, and, well, we, and the food's going to be alive too, which is clearly one of the most important aspects of Stampede, isn't it really? 
For me, it is. I know. It's true. So, you know, I think it's important. And you knew that the folks at the Calgary Stampede, they were not just going to let this slide and disappear into the ether for 2020. They are making sure that we still have a little bit of Stampede going on in our world. And joining us this morning is Dana Piers. He is president and chairman of the Stampede Board. Good morning, Dana. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I know you were just talking to our friends over at Global Television, and I saw people drooling. So clearly you got into the announcement about this 10 days of grab-and-go food event that you've got going on. Explain to us what you're doing. Sure. Well, we're trying to make sure that we keep Stampede Spirit alive here in the community and uh, bring some of those favorite things that uh, we know that everybody enjoys. Uh, can't can't uh, have a July without mini donuts Mm-mm. and uh, can't have a July without a pancake breakfast. Tell us, I know that you guys want to keep everybody safe. You want to, you know, observe social distancing protocols. So how is something like this going to work? Sure. So um, you'll be able to go on to calgarystampede.com for more details. I know that uh, first of the week we're hoping to have everything uh, up. Uh, There will be a pre-purchase for the mini uh, donut drive-through so that it will be already sort of set up in advance. There won't have to be any uh, exchange of of money and so forth once you're here on park uh, with regards to the kids' day uh, pancake drive-through again. There will be an advanced registration so that uh, your pancakes can be ready and and uh, packaged and and picked up. And uh, again, uh, there will be uh, further information coming out with regards to the YYC uh, truck rally, and uh, and certainly uh, that will bring a whole other group of uh, your stampede favorites in terms of corn dogs and candy floss and all those things that everybody enjoys. I love you're doing this and I love you're doing it, you know, as a sort of a drive-through idea. And are you, are you prepared? Because this is, there are going to be thousands of people, Dana, you know how many people (laughs) roll through the gates at Stampede. They're going to be rolling through in their cars now. Well, we're looking forward to it. Uh, And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll be prepared. We'll be able to uh, do this. I'm confident uh, in our, in our true Stampede fashion. Well, and of course, we've talked of uh, every week here on the morning news about Felipe Mazzetti Leite, uh, the parade marshal. He's mm-hmm. going to be making the way to town. So I think this is great. Uh, and I'm sure there were many meetings behind the scenes on how we could still have that spirit. I've heard also, and I've seen pictures. Do you guys have the stampede flags up or is that from previous years? Um, so there, there's going to be some new stampede flags that you'll see around the city. Uh, again, uh, just wanting to keep our stampede spirit out there and in front of everyone. And uh, so, yeah, please watch for those. Uh, uh, that'll be happening here uh, very shortly. Yeah, we're very close to what would be the start of stampede. So you don't have to tell us exactly what unless you want to. But will there be more announcements coming as you try to keep that uh, stampede community spirit alive and well? Uh, that's certainly our hope. Uh, we continue to work with uh, Alberta Health Services and the authorities to make sure that we can uh, proceed with some of these things uh, safely and in a manner that uh, uh, meets the guidelines. But we want to continue to uh, uh, bring some ideas forward. I have to you know, thank our employees, our volunteers, and certainly our, our partners. Uh, everybody has uh, really dug in on this and, and thinking about some new creative ways for us to, to uh, celebrate stampede not certainly in the traditional way but uh keeping our stampede spirit alive and mini donuts mini donuts, mini donuts. <laughs> thank you uh, so much dana we appreciate your time well thank you that is dana Pierce, uh, president and chairman of the stampede board